They agitate the mind and body of everyone. They increase lusty desires for enjoyment. They destroy the burden of material happiness and meditation. And they make one forget all material tastes. The whole world falls under their control. They vanquish shame, religion, and patience, especially in women. Indeed, they inspire badness in the minds of all women. Your lips increase the greed of the town and thus attracted. Considering all this, we see that the activities of your transcendental lips are always paradoxical. My dear Krishna, since you are male, it is not very extraordinary that the attraction of your lips can disturb the minds of women. But I am ashamed to say that your impudent lips sometimes attract even your fruit, which is also considered a male. It likes to drink the nectar of your lips and thus it forgets all other tastes. Aside from conscious little beings, even unconscious matter is something made conscious by the lips. Therefore, your lips are great magicians. Paradoxically, although your flute is nothing but dry wood, your lips constantly can give drink their nectar. They create a mind and senses in the dry wood and flute and give it transcendental bliss. That flute is a very cunning male who drinks again and again the taste of another male's lips. It advertises its qualities and says to the gopis, O gopis, if you are so proud of being women, come forward and enjoy your property, the nectar of the lips of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Thereupon the flute said angrily to me, Give up your shame, fear, and religion, and come drink the lips of Krishna. On that condition I shall give up my attachment for them. If you do not give up your shame and fear, however, I shall continuously drink the nectar of Krishna's lips. I am slightly fearful because you also have the right to drink that nectar, but as for the others, I consider them like straw. The nectar of Krishna's lips combined with the vibration of his flute attracts all the people of the three worlds. But if we gopis remain patient out of respect for religious principles, the flute then criticizes us. The nectar of your lips and the vibration of your flute join together to loosen our bells and induce us to give up shame and religion even before our superiors. As if catching us by our hair, they possibly take us away and deliver us unto you to become your maidservants. Hearing of these incidents, people laugh at us. We have thus become completely subordinate to the flute. This flute is nothing but a dry stick of bamboo, but it becomes our master and insults us in so many ways that it forces us into a predicament. What can we do but tolerate it? The mother of a thief cannot cry loudly for justice when the thief is punished. Therefore we simply remain silent. Such is the policy of these lips. Just consider some other injustices. Everything that touches those lips, including food, drink, or beetle, becomes just like nectar. It is then called Krishna Vela or remnants that are Krishna. Even after much prayer, the demigods themselves cannot obtain even a small portion of the remnants of such food. Just imagine the pride of those remnants. Only a person who has acted piously for many, many births and has thus become a devotee can obtain the remnants of such food. The detail chewed by Krishna is priceless. And the remnants of such chewed beetle from his mouth are said to be the essence of nectar. When the gopis accept these remnants, their mouths become his spittoons. Therefore, my dear Krishna, please give up all the tricks you have set up expertly, so expertly. Do not try to kill the life of the gopis with the vibration of your flute. 
Because if you are joking and laughing, you are becoming responsible for the killing of women, it would be better for you to satisfy us by giving us the charity of the nectar on your lips. While Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was talking like this, his mind changed, his anger subsided, but his mental agitation increased. Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu continued, This nectar from Krishna's lips is supremely difficult to obtain, but if one gets some, his life becomes successful. When a person competent to drink that nectar does not do so, that shameless person continues his life uselessly. There are persons who are unfit to drink that nectar, but who nevertheless drink it continuously, whereas some who are suitable never get it and thus die of greed. It is therefore to be understood that such an unfit person must have obtained the nectar of Krishna's lips on the strength of some austerity. Again, Sri Chaitanya Mahārāhu said to Ramananda Rai, Please say something I want to hear. Understanding the situation, Ramananda Rai recited the following words on the Gopis, which is the verse we just chanted, which I'll read now. My dear Gopis, what auspicious activities must the flute have performed to enjoy the nectar of Krishna's lips independently and leave only a taste for us Gopis, for whom that nectar is actually meant? The forefathers of the flute, the bamboo trees, shed tears of pleasure. His mother, the river on whose bank the bamboo was born, feels jubilation and therefore her blooming lotus flowers are standing like hair on her body. This verse quoted from Srimad Bhagavatam is part of a discussion the gopis had among themselves. As the autumn season began in Vrindavan, Lord Krishna was tending the cows and blowing on his flute. The Gopis then began to praise Krishna and discuss the fortunate position of his food. Whenever we should have done, we shall be shall have done, come to the Kasha, as to touch the Krishna Titan in Sambhuva. From this, Krishna Titan will come to those of the Obviously, it's a very high subject. The Antyadina of Sri Chaitanya Charitamrita describes briefly some of the, or gives it uh, insights into the transcendental madness that Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu continuously uh, exhibited during the last 18 years of his pastimes when he continuously stayed in Puri, relishing the nectar, tasting the nectar. And this, this particular section is specifically, literally, of him tasting 
the nectar, the flavor of Krishna Prasada, which made him think of how, how has this food become so wonderful tasting? It's because it's mixed with the nectar of Krishna's lips, which made him think of the on one occasion at least, of the flute of Krishna which tastes the nectar of Krishna's lips and then the gopis, their thoughts about the flute and then this verse is called in which we went today from the Venu Gita which the gopis are praising the flute or Krishna's playing on the flute. So obviously these are very high topics. Uh, and one is only supposed to speak according to one's realization. So, uh, who, are, who has realized these topics? Chaitanya Mahaprabhu has realized. Radharani, who is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And Madhavanta Puri. That's about it. Sri Dhammada. <laughs> very high topics. And so I'm, I'm going to. Uh, Speak rather on the rather than on the rasa vichar uh, consideration of the transcendental rasas which are uh, beyond my realization and probably beyond the realization of everyone else here. Speak on the underlying tanga vichar or philosophical understanding which is required to and even begin to enter into these topics. Therefore, Sri Chaitanya Charitamrita is supposed to be read, or Sri Prabhupada has recommended that after reading uh, Bhagavad Gita and Srimad Bhagavatam, Chaitanya Charitamrita itself opens the first few chapters with a very uh, detailed analysis of the position of Sri Krishna Chaitanya. Prabhupada, Sri Advaita Gadatha, Sri Vasadi Gorakhatarinda. This which is one of the reasons why Sri Chaitanya Charitamrita is considered the most important biography of Sri Krishna Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Another reason is because it describes his highest ecstasy, such as these being described here. So both uh, philosophically and in terms of his Ecstasies, which are the, uh, specific characteristic of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in the Sri Chaitanya Charitamrita. There are other reasons also Sri Chaitanya Charitamrita is considered the most important of his biographies. One being the beauty of the language. Um, the, yeah, the, the important underlying point here is Namasya Purushantva Yamishwaram Prabhupadaram Alakshan Saravabhutana Tantavakarastitam That this is all on Krishna is transcendental. Everything about Krishna is transcendental. It's beyond material energy. And therefore, when hearing such discourse, before hearing such descriptions, such one should have solid grounding in understanding the transcendental position of Krishna and everything that Krishna does. 
Even though, even though apparently situated within material nature, he comes to this world. Now, Yujjati, Saravastaya, he is not within material nature, he's always transcendental. And also, this, his devotees and everything else concerning Krishna, it's all transcendental. Krishna is not a product of this material energy. Krishna is not to be understood in terms of the material energy. Krishna is always transcendental material energy. And also, most importantly, cannot, Krishna cannot be understood by material senses, material intelligence, or material analysis. One has to follow the path of the Acharyas. To uh, understand all these points, just like, for instance, Krishna's flute has been described here. What is the sound of Krishna's flute? We've all heard the sound of a flute being played, and it may sound very nice, but however nicely a flute is played, that we have heard, uh, it doesn't have the, it doesn't come anywhere near the descriptions of the flute playing of Krishna in which it's described that Ananta Dev, he whirls around the darkness elsewhere is described. And all the all the three worlds become stunned, the gopis and all the women, their clothing becomes loose, and there are various descriptions of the flute playing of Krishna. And you wonder well just how how well can anyone play a flute? There are experts flute players in this world, both in India and in the West, and if you hear Maestro, you may wonder, well, how much more expert can Krishna be that it has such an effect, and such effects so, of, although music can be, uh, it definitely has a very great effect on the consciousness, uh, but we didn't hear of any music that had such effects as that of Krishna, the description which is given on Krishna's truth, right? So, what's going on here? What's going on is that the sound of Krishna's flute is uh, a sound that is in our present state of consciousness unimaginable. What does Krishna look like? Uh, it's, well, we say unimaginable, it's, 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 we, the descriptions are there in Shastra, so we can begin to visualize and understand, but actual understanding comes by uh, transcendental submission, and when that is revealed to us, Atashri Krishna Lama Dinabhavan Brahya when Krishna reveals himself to us out of his mercy, then through the transcendental senses, we can appreciate Krishna. It's not exactly through the <coughs> taste buds. The scientists can analyze how the the uh, food through the biomedium of rasa, liquid, one cannot taste without liquid. Rasa is required for tasting. 
through the via media of rasa, when the taste buds come in contact with the various uh, chemicals which are there in food, then one can taste various tastes, but it's not exactly through the taste buds that we can t- taste prasadam on the spiritual platform. It's not exact. It's not through the the uh, scientists again. They will describe an impression on uh, the, the various objects of vision. An impression is made on the retina and then turned upside down and upside down again, something like that, and then the brain and then in the neurons, and then you see it. But we can't exactly see Krishna by such a process. Krishna is, can be seen, touched, tasted, tasted, smelled and heard through the transcendental idea, nose, skin, and what else? Eyes, ears, nose, and tongue. So this is how Krishna is to be appreciated. As we have heard, Srila Prabhupada was told when devotees would make detailed ask on the questions about what's it like in the spiritual world, Srila Prabhupada would say, well, you have to go there to find out. Kind of descriptions, they give us some idea, but we have to go there and find out. Now I'm going to uh, move on to a related uh, topic regarding the nature of the spiritual world and our perception of it. What is Krishna when? Well, according to Srila Prabhupada, Krishna, among other quotes, he wears a dhoti. There is. Now, as uh, one of my universal uh, although apparently Sari is uh, an Pandit Sanskrit Ananda, he's renamed himself for his love of Sanskrit. Uh, an acquaintance, come friend of mine. Uh, is there any word? So he said Shatika. The word Sari is derived the modern. Yeah, well, sari, which comes in pretty much every Indian language, modern Indian language, is uh, derived from Sanskrit shatika, dhoti, dhoti means to wash, I don't know. So does Krishna wear a dhoti? Well, maybe not, because uh, it's not even a Sanskrit word. And these specific words are not mentioned in Srimad Bhagavatam or other scriptures, just cloth. Some, some terms like this are said. Srimad Bhagavatam consistently mentions Krishna's dhoti. And the gopis were signs or other residents of the spiritual world. The word 
Sari certainly comes in Sri Chaitanya Jaitamata, which is much later. And the, uh, the, in Chaitanya Bhagavata, I believe this is described in Panchakach, which means the five folds which are the, which is considered the proper way to wear the Hilti. And even traditionally Sari's. See the way the dhoti is tucked in at the back? The saris are also supposed to be tucked in, actually, according to the traditional system. However, um, it's not in Shastra, so Vrindavan uh, contends that, well, quite possibly Krishna's not actually wearing the dhoti. So, this is somewhat controversial. Uh, Maybe like myself, Radhanana Maharaj is seems uh, fond of controversy <laughs> and we're usually on the other side of the fence and battling it out and I really like Radhanana Maharaj, I often listen to his lectures and it seems that as long as one of us is here in this world we're going to be arguing about something. And uh, maybe if it goes back to the spiritual world, maybe we'll go on there too. <laughs> but, uh, um, but actually, I, I'm going to speak about this now. Does Krishna wear a sari or a dhoti? I actually had a long conversation with him, about two hours, and then just my, my uh, phone card ran out. But at the end, he uh, accepted that, well, well, I, I find last shot, which was the best one, see. So uh, my, my, is that well, Srila Prabhupada says that Krishna is like a dhoti. I'm pretty sure he is because Srila Prabhupada seen Krishna. He said, yeah, but maybe he wears something else on other occasions also. <laughs> so to which I contended, well, I'm pretty sure he's not wearing blue jeans. That's about that, and the money ran out. So, uh, so recently this uh, topic came up again. Uh, I regularly come here to demonstrate other points actually that uh, actually in, in one sense it's valuable that he brings these points up because uh, sooner or later we're going to have to contend with all of them. If he doesn't bring it up then someone else will. So it can't be said like that. Um, Yeah, uh, yeah, so the, the point I was making is that Yamshyama Sundarama Chinta Guna Swarupa Go Vindamadi Purusham Tamaham Bajami Nandamadi declares in the course of uh, offering his prayers to Govinda that uh, persons whose eyes are Tinted with the salve of love, they constantly see Shamasanda, whose form is a chintyagunasarupa. Interesting, inconceivable transcendent. His form is composed of inconceivable transcendental qualities. So that's an important word, inconceivable. In the description of Krishna, what does he look like? So the devotees, they always see it in their heart. And uh, not only within the heart, uh, 
Wherever the eyes of a devotee fall, they see. You got it now? I don't think it's in there. Um, wherever, the, wherever a devotee's eyes fall, in other words, wherever he, whatever he sees, he sees the form of Krishna. Tarva, there's another one. Tarva, Jamanda, Kena, Dengitama, Ishtadevashpurti. As a pure devotee, he doesn't exactly see the moving and non moving forms of this world, but he sees always the uh, form of this beloved God, his worship of God. So this is my argument that if, if Prabhupada sees Krishna like that, um, well, we can accept that uh, Krishna is dreaded, the Prabhupada says he's dressed as a building, but he's pretty sure he's dressed as a building. Of course, um, there's also uh, historical analysis that, by which it's maintained that saris are relatively recent introduction in Indian culture. Uh, I'm not convinced fully by such historical analysis which is based on seen old sculptures and this and that. Uh, because the Indian culture, at least up until very recently, was pretty standard through thousands of years. Although it's not homogenous, when you say in Indian culture, it's not in, in, in every part of India, everyone's exactly the same. The, the culture there, there's, there's a lot of variety within the culture. Uh, styles of wearing saris, and not even everyone, not even every woman wears a sari. And then, uh, general uh, usages, uh, although there, again there are varieties to it's generally the, uh, generally what's the word for that? It's the system. Generally, it's a patriarchal society, although in some parts, specifically in Kerala, which is a little strange, always, it's always a bit different there. It's matriarchal. Like this, but more or less, we'll find in Shastra, um, even in the descriptions of Krishna, and his Leela, we can discover from this, is more or less the same culture that goes on to the present day. Many of the usages and the points of understanding, the norms, normative behaviors, sociological terms, it's the same. It's just changed to a large extent recently with uh, the introduction of mass media cinema and TV and all these kinds of things. Otherwise, much in the culture was uh, pretty much the same. It's, it's the same culture. I was recently asked to give a lecture on uh, India, ancient and modern. So I said, well, ancient, a lot of what's ancient is still there. 
And modern, it's when we turn on modern, we're really just talking about very recently, because much of the culture has only changed very recently. Although, it, throughout the course of Kali Yuga, it has changed with the Muslim influence. Anyway, um, that there were no saris, uh, only in the last few hundred years. I question this, because... It, it is standard pretty much throughout India, all, all of North and South India. In Punjab, due to Muslim influence, many women who are the Salwar Khamis, the very name suggests it's not Vedic. And again, up in Manipur, which is bordering the non, non directly Indian area. Again, the, the cultures, but even the languages, it's very widely spread. It has been at least the last few hundred years. So I question. But um, one point Prinadana Maharaj makes is that when he says variety is the mother of enjoyment, so why should we think that in the spiritual world that the, the dress style and other features of the culture are more restricted? And in the present world, we're just living in a, a tiny uh, planet with, with a, a tiny fragment of time in Kali Yuga, in a very the worst time. So should we imagine, should we think that in the spiritual world there's more variety? Uh, maybe not exactly. The, 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 the culture seems to be fairly fixed. Krishna's Lila it's uh, full of variety, but the variety is more in the uh, dealings, or, or the, the nuances and the subtleties of the dealings. Otherwise, Krishna's Leela, there are varieties with him, but it's fairly fixed. Krishna gets born, and then he goes up and goes to Mathura, and he goes to Dwaraka. The Leela is fairly fixed. And the variety, as I said, it comes, it, it's like, we could say like the, in music, the raga and the alap, the raga is fixed, but then the musician can make some, the raga or the, the basic uh, scale is fixed, but then within that, the, the expert musician makes the various uh, improvisations which, which, shows his own expertise and hence variety. So it is fairly fixed and we see that throughout at least recent history that the, the pictures of, uh, of Krishna, of course there may be variety, uh, the paintings, there may be regional uh, variations and there has been Muslim influence in that also. But Basically, the, the, the descriptions that various poets make of Krishna and the uh, painting, it's, it's pretty much the same style. We don't find Krishna dressed in uh, paintings, of Krishna dressed in uh, anything which we might call non-Indian. So, uh, Yeah, there's a specific culture described in Shastra. There is plenty of variety in what it said that in, in, for instance, what Krishna eats. That's an important part of 
Krishna conscious, right? And Krishna's meeting here in Chaitanya Charitamrita, we find descriptions of dozens of preparations being served to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu by Advaita Acharya and by Sarabhata Acharya. So lots of preparations. But at the same time, uh, and uh, yeah, it said of Radharani that she uh, she cooks daily for Krishna. She never cooks, she always cooks different things. Although a description is given, Shukta Sarkadi, Bhaji, Nalitar, Pushman, there's some basic varieties within, but there may be some, uh, some change to that also, and within the basic variety. Because we don't find, for instance, Krishna is eating uh, chips and tomato ketchup, <laughs> or pizza for that matter. Although cakes are described, it's, uh, in traditionally they include a different kind of cake to the kind of cakes which are popular in Islam today. It's a completely different way of cooking. So there are many, uh, actually there are, even today, although they're, uh, unfortunately they cover all aspects of the very detailed Indian culture, which is Vedic culture, which is derived from the spiritual world, like Bhutta culture. In all, and there's so much is there, but a lot of it's being lost, including varieties of cooking. There's so, there's so many preparations uh, are there traditionally, which would be for feasts, uh, and weddings, and festivals, and deities. So there is great variety, but it's within a certain. Are you looking at the clock? What's the time? What's the time then? Nine o'clock. So, uh, we say sari and doti, well, it may not be exactly the way that it's that we see one today, but. That it is, and these are anyway generic terms. Sari and it's not like there's one exact style of doti or one sari, but it may be that Srila Prabhupada is using to cover all kinds of cloth or style or, or whatever. But, uh, a point that Hridayananda Maharaj makes is that Srila Prabhupada's translation uh, it's faithful to the Siddhanta, but it's Often non-literal, and actually the other acharyas do that. One word for what Srila Prabhupada calls purport, one word in Sanskrit is pavarta, which means a me. Uh, what does it mean? It's difficult to say. Uh, it's the pava means the the feeling, the mood, the, the rather. That is the meaning of the feeling here. So it seems that the, the power may be more is more important than maybe more important than the detail. Of course, if we the details also Shastra describes details, so that's not uh, inconsequential. We can't say that uh, that uh, we can anyhow get up to that. So. Um, an example that Vedanta Maharaj gives is that Srila Prabhupada describes, not only describes in his previous life, he was singing uh, certain kinds of songs for sense gratification. Srila Prabhupada, in the text translation, 
says that cinema songs, which is obviously non-literal, because uh, cinema as we know it is a recent introduction on this planet, and certainly not. Now we're going to singing songs that were played in cinema or that were derived from cinema. Although cinema song is obviously used in this context to mean uh, cheap romantic songs for sense gratification. But that's the point that I'm just making. It's a non-literal translation. And often Srila Prabhupada, in his translation, he blends his own commentary in to the translation, and sometimes he leaves things out which are in the Sanskrit. So, Tridharan uh, Maharaj makes the point that Srila Prabhupada is faithful to the Siddhanta, but it may not be exactly a literal translation. Uh, however, the, what, what are the implications of this? of this statement. Does this give us a license to second-guess everything that Srila Prabhupada says which is not directly philosophical or concerned with Siddhanta, philosophical conclusion? Um, that, could, that conclusion could be either subtly or uh, directly derived from saying, well, Srila Prabhupada doesn't even know natural translation, it could be said that, well, we don't have to accept as literal, or we don't have to accept everything that Srila Prabhupada says, unless it's according to, unless it's concerned with philosophical matters. And that leads us into various fields of uh, Srila Prabhupada's attitudes, gender roles, for instance, which Srila Prabhupada talks about a lot, uh, controversial subject within our society and outside our society. And within our society, uh, the only head of mundane feminism has put uh, itself right in. And uh, it suggests, sometimes suggested that uh, Australia Prabhupada's attitude toward gender roles and considering that women should have uh, more or less Subordinate roles, that's a product of Srila Prabhupada's uh, upbringing, which is, in one sense you could say it's true, because Srila Prabhupada was raised in a traditional Indian society, which is derived uh, to a large extent from the uh, pristine Indian or media culture. But uh, the implications of this, although uh, said it in this context, but others have said it, is that Srila Prabhupada was uh, influenced in a, just like anyone else may be influenced by the culture around him. He's, he's a product of his culture as much as anyone else. He's a purely body, but a product of his culture. Now this does again raise many theological questions. Um, are our Acharyas, are they also influenced by the culture around them? Here by saying Acharya means someone who's got an institutional position as an Acharya. I mean, the, the pure devotees of those who are qualified to comment on Shastra and Kula. 
guiding uh, their own disciples, and especially if they write, they're guiding future generations of devotees also. In other words, they're supposed to be directly in contact with Krishna. What they say is supposed to, is, is from the devotees' standpoint, is they're on the same platform of Krishna. As Krishna, they're not affected by the material energy. They're within the material energy, but they're not affected by it. So if we uh, are to postulate that Srila Prabhupada is affected by uh, material conditioning, then uh, it raises very great points as to our whole theology and the role of the Acharya as the arbitrator of, of Shastric understanding and then well maybe we can just read Shastra ourselves and then we can contend that well some parts some things in, uh, many things in Shastra are allegorical and then or the Vyasadeva himself was influenced and then where's the end of where does the end of this uh, argument go? The, the, the sanctity of Shastra and of the, of the whole culture is, is, uh, can be undermined. And again, I'm not saying that this was the intention of Vedanta Maharaj, but it, it, this uh, argument or this observation that it's taken to uh, what could be considered as logical conclusion, it can lead us into very dangerous uh, Territory, because Krishna consciousness or any religious uh, understanding is based on faith in something which is uh, not uh, empirically reducible. Faith in the, in the spiritual, the transcendental. Faith that, uh, not everything can be understood simply by our great power. The, the empiric method is by its great Of course, our Vaishnava Acharyas in particular have, take, uh, have uh, taken up this point very strongly that the empiricism is inadequate to approach the absolute truth. And not only in Vaishnava Acharyas, but in Shastra itself, Nayavaya Arna. Prabhachanena Lavyo, Namediyana, Vahuna Shutena. Right in Shuti itself, in the Vedas, it's stated that the Arna cannot be understood simply by lectures, by discussing it, uh, not, not by one's intelligence nor by great learning, even in the Vedas. Should, should, uh, not, even by the Vedas themselves state that simply by studying the, by the Vedas alone, one cannot understand the Vedas, even if one is vastly learned in them. <coughs> of course, this, it, this approach is uh, belittled by Empiricists who have faith in their own intelligence, and they say, well, how, can, "How can you believe in anything beyond which we can touch, taste, smell, feel, hear, and on the basis of our sensual uh, impressions speculate about?" The use of the 
mind, intelligence, and senses. That's all we know, and everything else is unknown, and therefore it's unreliable. Uh, therefore, we can only the empiric process, despite its flaws, it's the only process which we can rely on, and everything else is just imagination. Religion and God is imagination, so they scoff at faith in God, or even if they say, well, you have faith in God, but you, you have to subject it to uh, intellectual critique and see, see if it stands up. And of course it can't stand up to intellectual critique because the uh, intellectual critique is based on the uh, on the uh, presupposition that we can only we only accept everything which we can understand through our brain power. So definitely, the the spiritual cannot be understood by the material. But if we say that we can only understand the material, then it negates any possibility of there being any spiritual in, the, in it at all, and it's just considered a product of the imagination. So it's it's a uh, It's an, uh, a rift between the materialists and the spiritualists. And an over-literal approach that can lead us into atheism. It's a, it's a, very, it's a dangerous kind of approach. On one hand, we can say, all right, we see here the word sari and doti is not in Sri Bhagavatam. On the other hand, uh, our Acharya says Krishna wears the doti. So we also see that our Acharya says that Narayani was singing cinema songs. So, which is only one example of many actually. So, does that mean that therefore everything that Prabhupada said which isn't exactly corroborated by the original Sanskrit text is that up for reinterpretation? And even the Sanskrit text itself, uh, if we it may be understood to be allegorical or it may be uh, that the, the writers they were also writing according to their own culture without understanding of the great wonderful strides we've made in modern intellectualism. So maybe we have to reassess it according to our, uh, the great strides we've made in textual analysis, etc., etc., etc. So, uh, yeah, it, it can be very dangerous. And then, if Anyone would have dared, which is unlikely in the presence of Srila Prabhupada, to raise such points. It's unlikely because uh, well, people are afraid of Prabhupada. <laughs> <laughs> it's very heavy. And uh, Srila Prabhupada was setting the Mariana, which means the limit. He, he, it means, literally means limit, and it's also uh, used in the sense of etiquette. That one should know what is Mariana, what is the limits, how far can you go? And this term is used in Sri Chaitanya 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 Mariana Langan, jumping over the limits, going beyond the bounds of 
proper propriety. So it, it would have been considered impertinent also. And, and how far sh- should you or can you question the guru? Because in traditional Indian culture, the, the position of the guru is considered sacred. And that Krishna himself establishes. Acharya Vamijaniya Dhamanyeta Karichin. Namartya Buddhya Sunyeta Sarvadeva Mayavaru. Lord Krishna, speaking about the Guru, uh, says that the Acharya should be considered as me. Should be considered to be me. The Guru is me. Of course, this is to be understood in the philosophy of Achitya Veda Veda The Guru is not Krishna in all respects, but he is, when he speaks, it's as good as Krishna speaking. That's to be accepted. That's the point. One should not insult him, one should not disregard him or disrespect him, one should not consider him an ordinary mortal, because uh, he's the representative of all the demigods, or all the demigods, they worship him. The position of the Guru is uh, above the demigods, as Srila Prabhupada himself. When someone asked Srila Prabhupada that, uh, do you sometimes go to see the demigods? And Prabhupada came a little upset and said, why? Why should I go to see the demigods? They come to see me. Why should I go and see them? I am. The position of the demigods is very insignificant in position in relation to pure devotee Krishna. Prabhupada um, explained that also. He said, just like if you're a friend of the of the king, if you need any favor, you or if you need anything, you don't go to them. You don't bother with them. You don't go to you don't go to the ministers. Rather, they will if they need a favor from you, they'll come to you. They don't have direct access to the king, but you do because you're his friend. So your position is, even though you may not have an official post in the, in the management, your position is uh, actually much more important and more influential. Um, yeah, so the, the guru is the via media to understand Shastra and everything else. Now, this can raise problems when sometimes you see that the guru says something which is apparently wrong. As for instance, in Srila Prabhupada's books, there are some technical mistakes. Uh, for instance, in stating the number of soldiers that were killed in Kurukshetra, uh, according to the Shastri description, he increases it by an increment of ten, ten times more. So there are some technical mistakes there. Uh, definitely no mistakes in Siddhanta. Some mistakes have come through via uh, the non-perfect medium of his disciples in the course of editing, transcribing. For instance, um, in that purport where Srila Prabhupada says one should not make any disciples, that I looked at, this is taken from Srila Prabhupada, this Purport was taken from Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Prabhupada, in which Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati says, one should accept disciples. 
So I asked the archives to check it, and what? Lo and behold, it's an editor's mistake. It's someone that said somewhere or other it said the word not. In the probability, which is often used by the written bodies. But it's actually a mistake if you see the original transcription. Someone saying what should have said this And it's a major point. Sometimes in the books, even now, they make it something which Prabhupada didn't say. But even along with things that Prabhupada said, there may be some technical mistakes. So it does, uh, it does raise very delicate theological points. And delicate means fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Don't make conclusions very quickly. <coughs> Sometimes the Acharyas, they appear to contradict themselves. Often, the, even in the problems of itself, there are uh, Sanskrit composition is not exactly according to the rules, and that's uh, which is considered a very wrong thing to do in Sanskrit. But then the Acharyas, they've been describing that, they say this is the Arshapayo, the great the great souls of Risen thus. That's all. That's it. It's a mis- In other words, pointing out what might be considered a mistake and just pointing it out. Uh, this usage is of Arsha uh, they're written like that. In other words, it's a mistake from the Sanskrit point of view, but it's not called a mistake. It's not said, well, actually the Sanskrit's wrong, it should be like this. They say the, the great souls have thus stated this. That's the culture. You know, they say, well, Sri Prabhupada made this mistake and that mistake and that. No, no, no. Anyone who says like that, they make a mistake. It's very offensive, actually, to say that. Uh, even if, according to all, uh, everything we can see and understand, it is a mistake. You don't say it's a mistake. That's just, that's called culture, something which is. Uh, lacking in the modern world and among uh, empiricists in general and people who take the empiric approach and it is a complete block to understanding the transcendental. So uh, this approach, of course, this will be scoffed at by the transcendental, but the non-transcendentalist by the empiricists. See, they make so many mistakes and then they just say divine. And they just see, they're just ordinary people are making mistakes. And they'll say that. But then uh, their lives are dry, they have no God, they have no rasa, they, they uh, on the chariots of their minds, which leads them judging round and round and very long round of lust, greed, anger, envy, illusion. Uh, what's the actual result of empiricism? In that one is uh, very proud of one's own intelligence, but that's it. You're stuck in the material world. And the, 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 one of the two points of Srila Prabhupada particularly true. I would have these two points I would say are the basis of Srila Prabhupada's whole preaching to the to the uh, to the world. One is that we're not the body, and number two is that there is a supreme there is a controller. We are controlled. We're not the body, there is spirit, and there is a, a supreme spirit. And then everything else is on the basis of this, these two points. 
So these uh, Shiva Prabhupada explained very logically, and then, uh, so if, if we want to accept logically, then these two points, they are, it's, it's highly acceptable. You know, but the details, what is the nature of spirit, what is the nature of God, that we have to learn from Shastra, actually, from the via media, or the, the pure devotees. So, um, what else? Just a few more points. Yeah, uh, yeah, my, uh, my position is that, well, if Srila Prabhupada sees Krishna in a dhoti and the gopis in a sari, well, I'm, I'm, Quite happy with that, and I don't want to say any other way because if that's the way Prabhupada sees, and Prabhupada's given Chakudana Diloje Jamne Jamne Prabhupada, he's my guru, and uh, if he sees Krishna like that, he's going to sh- he's going to show Krishna, me. and I'll take Krishna the way he gives Krishna to me. I'm not going to try and find out Krishna in any different way, more intelligent way. Uh, I, 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 I have to be fully satisfied with that and I can't think of Prabhupada cheating me because I didn't show me Krishna wearing something else. So this is the devotional attitude. The, uh, that whatever our Guru gives, that's what we take. We have faith that he is not cheating us, he's giving us everything. So that faith is required that Prabhupada can give us Krishna, he knows everything. Uh, we don't make a, we, we don't get into, well, this mistake, that mistake, this might be, not be correct, that might not be correct. Again, there may be some grounds for that, but it's, it, it, there may be grounds for uh, dealing with scholars, but one way is just saying, the hell with you, you know, you've got your, you've got your outlook, which is leading you round and round in the material world. And we have our outlook, which leads us to the spiritual one. So you don't have faith, well, we don't have faith in your process either. Your faith, your process is very limited. And so uh, it may not be necessary to get into all the details of every single supposed non-literal statement that Prabhupada made and then try and analyze it and what is the meaning of this and what is Prabhupada's position. Is he, is he a 19th century Bengali Influenced on. And Prabhupada's pure devotee of Krishna, that's how we, that's how we know him. Uh, this is the devotional book by which one can make devotional problems. The, the empiric approach is uh, maybe intellectually appealing to some people, although we have our own intellectual field also. But it is very dangerous. So I, I, I didn't rebut. I did this little talk, I didn't attempt to rebut what the Dayananda Maharaj says about this, uh, but it's not a rebuttal, and probably it, maybe there is no rebuttal, because like I say, it's, it's, it's a different approach altogether. It's on, the, on the platform that the question is raised, there's, there is maybe no rebuttal. Yeah, because saris and dotis, the world isn't in Sri Lanka. So, how do you rebut that? Maybe there isn't any rebut. But then on the devotional platform, which what Sri Lanka is meant to give us, it's not. Sri Lanka wasn't 
written by Srila Vyasadev so that some scholars in Oxford University could come along and make, get their PhDs studying it and finding out all the so-called faults in it. That's, it's not meant for them at all. But whatever the Bhagavatam is not to be understood, it is by Pati one can understand. Not by simply by one's intelligence or even by writing or studying commentary. That also, that in itself, that the devotional attitude is required. So, I'm finished. Are there any questions? <coughs> yes, yes, it's not so much a question, but uh, two very short comments, if I may. Do we have a, uh, another mic? I can hear you, but others might not be able to hear you. Okay, the, to, to begin with this uh, problem with this notion, sorry. Uh, according to archaeologists, the modern archaeologists believe that, uh, or they have actually found evidence that the aliens, when they came to the Indus Valley about 30,000 years ago, yeah. the, the idea that the aliens came from outside is already the nothing. They came from according to archaeologists. Yeah, according to archaeologists. That's <laughs> This theory was invented by the Westerners to dis- as part of their uh, strategy to undermine Vedic culture. When they they came to India, they found an ancient culture with a with a highly highly sophisticated uh, language. In fact, the study of grammar, there was no study of grammar in the Western world until the Westerners came to India and saw that there was a there was st- study of grammar in Sanskrit and how sophisticated it was. And they, uh, in their, uh, their jingoism, or their, their, everything in the West is best. The West is best, Christianity is best, and especially everything British is best. Especially everything English is best, especially everything in southern England is best. <laughs> in the London area. London, London, Cambridge, Oxford, and anything outside that stinks. So, uh, so uh, this, they were, many Westerners when they came to India, they were fascinated by the culture and they found it. How, and even materially, just like for instance, there's that uh, Ashok Stamba in Delhi. Yes, yes. Even to, even now, the scientists they don't know how it's standing up or how it hasn't rusted. There are many things all over the world, and yet just like the pyramids, they have no idea how it's there. And the standard of uh, astronomy in ancient India, even years before the uh, Copernicus and company started looking through their telescopes, they had advanced astronomy. There were so many things. And they were Indians, and they made a strategy to undermine them. The, uh, the chairs of uh, Indology at Oxford and Cambridge, there was, at Oxford, I don't know if they started Cambridge, they were deliberately, with the specific purpose of undermining the Vedic culture. Yeah, and, um, 
Yeah, there were so many things. Just like they, they, they found the weavers in Dhaka, now in Bangladesh, they could make such fine cloth, much better than anything from the Lancashire mills. So they, well, they wanted to sell it. They, they took the cotton from India, sent it to Lancashire, spun it there on their mills and sent it back to India. But why should they buy it? Because they have much better local. So they solved that problem by cutting off the thumbs of the weavers. Yeah, I'm just showing that this is, this is all these, this Aryan invasion theory is based on envy and it has been pretty much thrown out. If you're up to date on all these things, it's rebutted. Of course, there are still some old school people going on with it, but in the next generation it, it cannot be accepted because it's got nothing to stand on. Another example someone recently told me is that there are knives you can still see in, uh, in Mysore, in the palace, certain kind of knives that will just cut through stone. And uh, there are many things, but a lot of it's been covered up. But the British, they, they saw this and they wanted the caste of people to tell them how to do it. They said, no, it's a, it's a sacred principle that this is only passed on within our caste. They wouldn't tell it, so they killed them. And now no one knows how to make them. So this is, uh, this is the kind of background on which, from which the Aryan invasion theory came from. I can give you references for this if you want to study it more. If you want. Well, on the other hand, also there is, I mean, I don't know if you subscribe to Homo sapiens, if you're Homo sapiens. means intelligent man. Bunch of idiots. <laughs> <laughs> the very idea of Homo sapiens and what was before that, Homo erectus and... Yes, yes. Yeah, there's another rubbish idea that we've all descended from monkeys. I read in the Encyclopedia Britannica that there, that monkeys, they used to go around on four paws. And then, then they'd reach up sometimes to the trees to get the fruit. And those who were taller, they could get the fruit better. And then they, they, they started standing on two legs. And that's how we became human beings. <laughs> that's in the Britannica. That's not sapient. That's damn stupid. How about one? Explain, for example, that in our blood group, it's not sufficient to say that my blood group is A or AB or something like that. I have to say also, research positive or research negative. Now, this research differs to apes. Well, um, where did it come from? It's everything, just like the scientists, they're trying to find a unified one theory to explain everything. Here's a theory to explain everything. There is a supreme controller who designed everything and put everything in place and holds everything in place. It's the perfect theory in which every scientific discovery can be can fit into that theory, but they won't accept it. Because Asatya Bhakatishtante, Jagadavura Nishwaram, they're demons, but the very nature of demoniac people, as Lord Krishna describes in Bhagavad Gita, is that they won't accept that there is an ultimate ultimate underlying principle which is controlled by the Supreme Controller. I'm sorry you've taken that attitude, but this is not quite... Oh, well, I'm not sorry. You are sorry, but I'm very happy, because this is what Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, and there is a supreme controller, everything is controlled, just like, for instance, uh, there comes a time of day, unless you have severe constipation like me, in which most people, they uh, feel an overwhelming need to evacuate what they had yes, yesterday. And you can't control it, and you can't control death, you have to die. We are controlled. There is a supreme controller. Forgive me, but this attitude, I think, is, 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 
Well, you can think whatever you like. Excuse me, in, in other words, you mean that you should say what you like. Everyone has a right to say what they like. Here we're saying what Krishna likes. This is the Srimad Bhagavatam class. I'm not sure if it's worth it. Well, what I, was going, what I was going to say was, yeah. in the highest realm of uh, science, okay, science for example, in quantum physics, there is that the two conclusions. One conclusion? Yeah, here's your conclusion. Quantum physics? They made a conclusion. <laughs> really? Wow. Okay, let's give you the Nobel Prize. Excuse me, sir. Let me explain. First one is very much similar to the one you mentioned about. Are you a physicist, by the way? Do you understand quantum physics? Really? Yeah. Really? You can say that. I teach it actually. Oh. But you're not a physicist. Sorry? You're not a physicist. Well, I'm a mathematician, but I have a lot of interest in physics. I see. You're not a physicist, but you teach physics. It's not every scientist who would agree with you that, that, that they, they have solved. I mean, there are so many unsolved problems in quantum physics also, right? Yes, of course, yes. Of course. Yes, yes. But the thing is, you see, you mentioned this empiricist theory. That is very much, very much well appreciated in quantum physics. But at the same time, what you did not say, and which is very important, is that there is also the concept of subjectivism. It, which comes in modern science, yeah. In, so in, in, in quantum physics. Subjectivism yeah. say, simply says that this world you cannot judge it by what one possesses or what are the material characteristics or material uh, designs. What it concerns with primarily is who you are, how you relate to uh, your fellow beings, and finally how you relate to what is called the universal consciousness. In science, we don't speak of God. Yes, because they're atheistic demons. So, no, we the same thing. The, the, the idea of universal consciousness is one to which our individual consciousness will live. Yeah, all right, sir. Yes, yes, yes. It's called, in, in ancient uh, Indian philosophy, it's called Mayavad. Sorry? It's called Mayavad. Nothing of this sort, no. According to Vivekananda, for example. Well, sir, so, uh, all right, all right, thank you very much. I think we'll stop then. Vivekananda was another classroom. I know you don't like that, but it's true. He was a meat eater, and uh, he, he said so many wrong things. His own guru ate human flesh and beef and so many things. Sorry, who are you speaking about? Ramakrishna, so called Ramakrishna. Well, you have your, certainly your point of view. No, my point of view is documented. I don't. Mm -hmm. I don't know where you got this particular. I'll give you the reference if you want. Sorry? Uh, this there, did you? He himself, he practiced every religion, right? So when he was a Christian, he was eating beef. When he was practicing, when he was practicing Tantra, he had human flesh, as Tantrics do. So if that's what you want to follow, and you, if you think that's very good, all right. Up to you. I can give you the references if you want. Yes, I've heard something like that, but I'm not particularly following Krishna or anything. All right, don't call him. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Oh yeah, I have books here. Srila Prabhupada told me to write books, so I'm not giving books. <laughs> Including my memories of Srila Prabhupada, in which there's an essay which is uh, 
what does it say? Uh, I'm speaking strongly in Shilapal. Uh, I'm not so bad. I'm only telling me. 